for January 30th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 187, The Sam Awards. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with the panel to overthink all manner of movies, TVs, music, and popular culture. Uh, let's get started. Panel, your question this week. Uh, as we record this, the SAG Awards, the most coveted award being uh, offered tonight, is being offered tonight uh, in Los Angeles, California. So... Uh, Panel, I put it to you. Award a SAG award. To whom will you award a SAG award and for what? Pete Frenzel, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh, it's good to be back. Another week and another opportunity to talk with you beautiful people. And, of course, to, to, uh, to make up another... Uh, sideways and lateral non-answer to your question uh, so when i think sag award we're not gonna go the i'm not gonna go the obvious direction because i always have to go first which means I, I should leave room in case somebody down the line can't think of anything i shouldn't take the obvious thing that's why we put uh, you first though pete because we know that you uh you can think outside the box right but even though I think outside the box, I can still hit the target, which is why I'm giving my SAG award to Park Sung Hyun, the young phenom from, uh, from, from South Korea, who has won two gold medals in Olympic archery. My SAG award, of course, named for Sagittarius, the <laughs> constellation <laughs> Zodiac. Uh, I don't think Park Sung Hyun has the hindquarters of a horse. It would be inappropriate for me to say that. Uh, but, of course, they only take pictures of archers from the waist up, so I would not really be certain. Um, but still, for someone you know, for somebody who's the only centaur, in their the centaur from South Korea, exactly. I'm not necessarily. I'm not saying that Park Sung Hyun isn't is a centaur. I'm just wondering why she hasn't denied yet, or he. I can't tell from this Wikipedia page that I'm looking at. She, excellent. She holds the women's world record for a 70 meter, 72 arrow round set at the 2004 Olympics in Athens when she was a when she was a scant 21 years old. So there you go. This is somebody who looks like a stone cold mother in that fisherman's cap on her Wikipedia page, just like staring down that target. But uh, yeah, when it comes to archery, I mean. Just given the 10 or 15 seconds I took to scan the Olympic archery medalists, there's no one who comes close to Park Sung-hyun. Thank you, Pete Fenzel. Uh, Mark <laughs> Lee, uh, it's time to award your SAG award. The award? The SAG award for best Indian food goes to SAG Paneer. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> now guys, wait, you guys, I just, I, just landed, I just landed from a 15-hour flight from Asia like yesterday, so that's about all I got. Is that a kind of responsibility for the words going to come to my mouth in this podcast? I am jet lagged. Give more details about this delicious Indian food. Tell me about it. Wait does does that work? Are you allowed to like fatigue yourself to the point of of breaking your mind and then just declaim responsibility for anything you say? I feel pretty. Because if so, that gives me a a lot of outs in the future. Like I'm just going to stop sleeping and then say whatever I like, and then people and then when people call me, I'll be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just really tired. I didn't sleep at all last night." And people say, "Well, you stopped sleeping, so you can say these terrible racist things." I'm like, "Yeah, you know." I mean, you're going to say racist things. Like you feel like if if the beast were let off the chain, uh, it would be just straight racism coming out. 
Probably. I mean, really, we're all a little racist, and why not just why not just plumb my sanity to the depths and see what I can dredge up? A little see racist. What, what... Speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I, I am. I, I am. I, I'm sitting here with zero information about this Indian food, which, and I'm pretty hungry. So, <laughs> if this is what I'm going to get, I can come to terms with it. But I'm just hanging that up. It's, I'm, I'm it's holding out my non here. For the SAG Awards, its most important criteria is has the word SAG in it. Okay. So we're not even <laughs> going to find out whether it's a restaurant or a dish. It's or also the most similar to, uh, to, to, cream, to cream spinach. Oh, so it's a kind of food. Okay, excellent. Yes, 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 yes. Good, good, good. It's delicious and could go right along with American barbecue, except it's I'm, Indian. Oh, wow. Man, that's pretty awesome. I'm yep. pretty hungry. <laughs> uh, John Parrish, award your SAG Award, sir. What up? What up? All right, so what I'm going to do is actually go completely contra the spirit of the prior two, and I think the third entry, and give a legitimate acting award. (gasps) And that that award goes to the sagging face of Michael Shannon, critically acclaimed and beloved actor, currently in Boardwalk Empire, and I believe also coming up in the new Superman reboot, Man of Steel. You might also recognize him from Jonah Hex, possibly, or The Runaways, or My Son, My Son, What Have You Done, or Revolutionary Road, or Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, or a lot of other very nice, very well-regarded indie films. Michael Shannon, who continues to get work despite having the least pleasant face and voice in all of acting, second perhaps only to Gilbert Gottfried. I mean, listen to the man talk, and it's it's really a struggle to to keep focused on. But Did somebody of say person. unpleasant voice? <laughs> I'm no. still not I'm still not convinced that all the people who don't comment on the podcast don't hate that. <laughs> but anyway, continue. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, there's something there's something sort of magnetic about how unappealing he is, and that I guess is is the draw. So Michael Shannon, the the overthinking it podcast, gives you casts their SAG vote because between the between the six of us, don't we have a SAG vote? I mean, like we have one. Do. Yes, we have one. Yes. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna cast it for Michael Shannon in something, and we're good. Excellent. Uh, finally, Wait, so Matt, uh, did you actually vote in the uh, SAG Awards? No, I didn't. I actually I didn't vote because I uh, I got they send us screeners um, now, and I didn't watch them all, and so I didn't feel responsible enough to vote because I would be just voting for my favorites of the four or five movies that I happened to watch, rather than the the dozen or so that um, uh, you know that that I was sent. So I have to uh, I I had to. Um, what declined to exercise the franchise this uh, this time around? You recused yourself. I did. I did. <laughs> but uh, I still will award a SAG award on this podcast, uh, and that that award goes to Sag Harbor, New York, uh, a village <laughs> on Long Island uh, that was settled around uh, about 1730. Um, yes. Uh, one of the first uh, crops that was sent back to England, the tuber-producing vine, uh, is now called the Apois Americana. Now, uh, the, uh, the, the Metoac people called it, uh, the Metoac uh, uh, Algonquins called it uh, Sagabon. This is how the harbor and oh. the neighboring town got its name. Well, that is very interesting. <laughs> we have all learned something today. That's... <laughs> Uh, you know, there was a there's a giant rock near my hometown, right across the border, that uh, the Lene Lenape Native Americans refer to as Pamakapuka, um, and the town of, of Glen Rock is named after it because of the rock. They didn't call it Pamakapuka. 
That uh, would have been a little bit of a mouthful. Also, I mean, is <laughs> is is that the rock that the the Michael Bay movie The Rock is about? Yes. Welcome to the rock in the middle of this intersection. It's about 10 feet high. Yeah, yeah, no, Sean Connery goes there every year. It's sort of like the swallows going back to Capistrano. And then he has to escape, and everybody throws nuts at him. It's like an old medieval tradition. So, I don't even... <laughs> uh, so, oh yeah, no, I'm looking, I'm looking at a picture of Michael Shannon. But look at him. He works a lot. Well, we must love him then. He must join our list. He must join our list of enshrined working actors that we, along with uh, Overthinking It Muse, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, absolutely. Michael Shannon, Michael Shannon, if you call into the podcast, we will send you two packages of Mint Milano. Oh, God. Well, this, I, is how, I, I, this is how inflation happens, you know? I don't know if he outranks Ghostface Killer. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've made the commitment, so it's too late now. But uh, but there you go. I guess we have to up it. Does the reanimated corpse of ODB still only get uh, one package of Mint uh-huh. Milano? Hey, when's the last time Ghostface dropped an album? That's all I'm saying. Michael <laughs> Shannon, he's out there, he's working, he's getting it done. Ghostface, I mean, step up. The the bar has been the bar has been leveled. Yeah, Ghostface, when you work as much as Michael Shannon, you will send you your uh your box of, of mint Milanos. So uh hey, uh Pete, you've uh recently seen a movie about a guy standing on the edge of something, right? Yes, it's it's called The Gray. No, no, it's not. It's, not called the, it's like a I man standing not, on the edge of a I, fight with a wolf. I feel like I'm losing but. touch with, with pop culture. I had not seen a single television advertisement. I had not seen a, a newspaper, a display ad, a billboard for Liam Neeson in The Gray at all. Until I looked on, I, I was writing the, uh, the open thread, I looked on Box Office Mojo to see what was opening, and I saw um, The Gray and watched a uh, trailer online. Um, did, did you see ads for this movie? Has this movie been like out there? Have I just been tuning it out, or is it really not been? Has it really not been advertised? Oh, the gray. Well, I mean, to be fair, I didn't see the gray. But to comment on the gray, there is a pretty cool viral video going around of from the movie. It's a slice from the movie. Someone bootlegged it of him on the cell phone with the wolf, telling him that uh, if he if he wants money, he doesn't have any, uh, but he has certain skills that can make life very difficult for a wolf like him. So uh, he needs to get his daughter back, uh, or he's going to kill him. Um, no, I saw like a, tra- a trailer. I, I think the the the, the gray seems like kind of like this is the this is garbage time for movies. This is the season of the year where they dump the movies they're not sure what to do with right like and sort of hope that they outperform their relatively low expectations i don't mean to say that these things are garbage a lot of people work very hard on them but um if the gray is anything like man in a ledge there's a degree to which you know it didn't really come together and it's understandable why they would put it in a time of year where there isn't a ton of pressure to like spend a whole ton of marketing dollars backing a particular piece like if it turns out to be a hit awesome great you know wonderful but if it doesn't at least we didn't sell the farm for it you know what i mean Mm mm-hmm yeah, because you know those those uh, those shareholders of those media companies—they're like wolves that Liam Neeson has to fight with his bare hands in the middle of the uh, of the Arctic or Antarctic wasteland. And an awesome um, broken his, broken glass glove. Yeah, and broken like are, are they Coke bottles or or liquor nip bottles or or what? I broken bottles, broken bottles strapped to his hands. That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty tough. No, but the movie I saw was Man on a Ledge, not The Gray. And it's about a man on a ledge. That much is true. It's sort of about a man on a ledge. It's kind of a little bit about a man on a ledge. They put the man on the ledge, and there's immediately a flashback that lasts for a while, where he's not on the ledge. But um, but yeah, did you want to talk more about the him Liam, the old Scott, the old uh, what Irish guy, right? He's Irish. The Irish widower battling the wild. Or do you want to talk about the oh, Terminator dude standing let's, outside? Let's talk about Man on a Ledge for a second, because that's that's kind of a 
So, so the man, so the movie, the entire movie isn't actually a man on a ledge because I, I feel that's kind of selling it short. I mean, phone booth for its for whatever you consider its uh, strengths or weaknesses was at least shot almost entirely in a phone booth. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's it's Colin Farrell in a phone booth for you know eighty of the ninety some minutes, and you know you, you you go into a movie called Phone Booth, you get a guy in a phone booth. I go into a movie called Man on a Ledge. I am I am not treated to a man on a ledge. Is that well, he's he's there. I mean, so I've been spending some free time this weekend listening to academic lectures, <laughs> and so I will uh, want a literary theory. And so let me apply something here: the hermeneutic circle of Man on a Ledge is very complicated, right? And the, the, the way well, that... Her- I, I, like, sorry, I'm, I'm uh, stuck here uh, on something that you've just said. Um, yes. Where do you get lectures on literary theory to listen to? You can actually go on iTunes, and it actually... Um, I'll plug a guy I know, uh, Paul Fry, former master of Styles College, where I went to at Yale University. Uh, his course in Introduction to Literary Theory is available on the Open Yale University on iTunes through iTunes University, and it's free. So you can listen to his entry-level course, or not entry, not entry-level, but his like, survey course on literary theory, which is interesting. And, I, and, and when I went to school, there was like a, a, a big Chinese wall, you know, I, that's a finance term and also kind of racist, but there was a big barrier between Eng- the study of English and the study of literature. Yeah, uh, it and- was, uh, yeah, and you couldn't get you couldn't get literature courses counted towards the English major a lot of the time. But I took that that was literature three hundred. I took that course too. But in a year that Paul Fry wasn't teaching it, my professor had the awesome first name Pericles. <laughs> so anyway, one of the concepts he outlines in one of the first lectures is this idea of the hermeneutic circle, which is a hermeneutics is nothing more than just sort of the systems of interpretation, right? How do you interpret texts? Uh, and uh, and it goes it starts in a certain medieval kind of scholarship and goes on from there. And we won't go into that in too much detail. But um, the way the hermeneutic circle works is that you be, you read like the first sentence of something. And Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. You you begin with a work of art and uh, or something that you're reading or not even art interpret a text of some kind, and then you immediately recall what is it that this piece like reminds me of, or what am I thinking about this piece, and also what am I thinking about the whole that's related to this piece, right? So I know that this piece is part of a whole. So I go from this small part to this idea of what the small part makes me, how I interpret the small part, to the idea of what its place might be in the larger piece that I'm reading, and then I progress forward to the next part, which is, okay, what's the next sentence, and then what do I think about that in terms of what I've read before, what do I think about it in terms of the the expectations for the whole that I'm seeing, right? So, I mean, an example of it that would be pretty straightforward would be, like, if I were watching American Gladiators, right? And so I see, like, a bunch of people come out in, in like, spandex, and I'm like, okay, there's a bunch of, like, models in spandex. Like, what does this remind me of? Is it, like, some sort of running man thing, or is it, like, a sex thing? I'm not sure. I know it's part of a half-an-hour sports show. Like, let's see where this is going, right? And then, like, and then you move forward. Oh, there's people who aren't the crazy models in spandex. So there must be some sort of opposition between these two people. Okay, so it's going to be a battle between these two people. They're going to fight to the death, Okay, now they're going to be throwing Nerf balls at each other. And so with each progressive element of the text that you get, your interpretation grows and becomes more fleshed out. And it's a way of kind of uh, reading a piece one part at a time and considering how it interacts with the whole. Matt, that sounds like a pretty good summary of that hermeneutical approach to literary interpretation. Another way to to look at it is, um, I don't think they have them anymore, but there used to be a thing on the internet called progressive GIFs, where GIFs were... uh, uh, 
Well, and I guess you see, I guess you see progressive images sometimes where a very low resolution version of the image um, that's very blurry and kind of blocky and, and pixelated loads, and then it gradually refines, and then it gradually refines, and then it gradually refines, kind of uh, each iteration getting sort of clearer and clearer as to what it's a picture of, and that seems to right. be the the same kind of thing that you're describing. Right. So Man on a Ledge starts out like Phone Booth, in, in that it's called Man on a Ledge. The first thing I interpret is that it's going to be like Phone Booth, because Phone Booth is set like a block away from where I used to live in New York City, uh, and I have a, and even though it's only like 85 minutes long, I have like a deep and abiding affection for Phone Booth. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be Sam Worthington, a.k.a. the Terminator dude, a.k.a. Jake the Avatar guy, like on a ledge for the whole movie. And he's going to be talking to Kiefer Sutherland or something like that, right? So, so that's the idea, right? And then there's like a flashback, and the flashback is sort of like the fugitive, and you're showing how he got to be where he is. He's like an ex-con, right? So like, oh, okay, like – so like he's a criminal, and so it's not just about this is his history. We're going to be going back and forth into his past. It's like a psychodrama about what's going on in his mind, right, right, right? But then you keep watching, and then they introduce this like female cop character who is played by uh, – let me get this right – it's Elizabeth um, Banks? Yes, Elizabeth Banks. She's a movie star, but for some reason she's very far down on the, on the list of credits. Um, and then she's brought in as opposition to him, and they, they talk about her history, and it's pretty clear she's going to be a main character. And it's like, oh, okay, so he's on the ledge, and maybe she's going to be on the ledge. It's about their relationship. Uh, and then what the movie turns out to be is um, a lot more like Ocean's Eleven. Which you don't what? expect it to what? be at all at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a heist movie. Um, it, it's a it's a. I mean, I don't want to say that in a in too specific a sense because I don't. I mean, it's about robbing Ed Harris or something, right? Yeah. So so the movie that it's most similar to that's come out recently is Tower Heist, probably. Um, in the sense that, in, in a lot of ways, if Tower Heist is the way that we described it, um, and I'm not necessarily saying it's about stealing stuff. I don't want to talk too much about it, but um, but I will say that uh, that it's a move. It's a caper. Right, like there's like a whole bunch of different things that are happening throughout the course of the movie that are like tremendously unlikely and time to happen at the same time, right? And in this case, it's not like Tower Heist, but the way that it's like Tower Heist is that it's this particular genre piece built around this like class struggle narrative where there's this like evil rich guy who has a, a tower, right? And he has this like and he's bad, and it's about the sort of the regular person getting comeuppance against this other guy through exercising the conventions of other genres of film, right? Like, which is, um, in the case of Tower Heist, is like comedy and, and sort of Eddie Murphy buddy cop stuff. And in the case of this, is kind of like a taught, you know, who's in this movie is, um, da, 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 da. why do they not put the people in order? Ed Burns, who's in the wonderful movie Confidence, which I liked a lot. Uh, and this movie sort of aspires to be sort of like that, in that, like, it has all these moving parts that are all supposed to come together at the same time. So the journey that you go on hermeneutically while you, like, come to terms with what the movie is supposed to be is a long one. And then at the end of the day, it's not necessarily – it doesn't necessarily stick the landing as that kind of movie. Like it, it breaks down in a bunch of other ways, and it keeps changing genres again and again, and there are gunfights and people running around, and like things get very sloppy at the end. And, and, and then there's like a moral of the story, and there's a bunch of reversals, and, and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens that isn't very plausible. Um, and I want to bring that up not to complain about it, but to point out that this sort of also fights the interpretation of it as like a heist movie. So if you think about like uh, – like Ocean's Eleven, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty silly that happens in Ocean's Eleven, but there aren't too many times where, like, something is just, like, so incredibly just just totally pulled out of somebody's butt that, like, it breaks the reality of the tone of the movie, right? So, so here's, a, here's a question, Pete. So you, you say it sort of dovetails into a, a bit of a heist movie, and, and some of the trailers I've seen back up, there are people yeah. drilling into things or detonating things, etc. So 
it, as much as you can without spoiling it, is the ob- is the thing being heisted like some physical piece of material, like like there's some object or like a briefcase or a file or a hard drive or or something inside a safe deposit box? Is there something? Yeah. Okay. So that, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's I mean, and obviously that's a tradition of heist movies. But I'm wondering when we're going to reach the point where where that fades away, where that becomes less important, and. I bring this up in particular because if you look at, if you look at you know the ten richest people in the world, the ten wealthiest you know people on the planet, uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, uh, what's his name from Oracle are are going to be high on that list, and they're all rich because of intellectual property. In other words, because of ideas that they have, not necessarily because they have like the world supply of radium or something like that. So I'm wondering when we're going to get to the point where we see a heist movie where what's being stolen is some idea or people are capitalizing on some idea. So I guess I, I don't know how you would depict that cinematically, but where you get like some where you get where you get some heist where I maybe like a, a big tech company, you know, releasing oh, yeah. IPO or something. Sorry, have you seen in, have you seen Inception? Because that's the movie that you're talking about. Like, it's basically the movie that you're talking about, where it's about business people and like the transactional information behind businesses and the sort of power and the discourse of leadership of businesses and manipulating that through a heist film. That's, that's exactly what we're talking about. Is I mean, it doesn't seem like Inception is going to be that kind of movie because it's so, you know, terse yeah, but and even, intellectual. But even, even that needs to be de- even that needs to be depicted as you know going through the hotel level, then going through the ice level, and then you know fighting all. Yeah. Cards, etc. There's no. I'm, I'm not sure if it would be cinema. Well, I'm sure it is cinematically possible. I just can't think of how to depict like I don't know. Let's say some you know tech startup release or some tech firm releasing its IPO, and there's this crack team of hackers and financiers and conners who are going to get in on the IPO before it before it blows up and either you know do something to it or, or like like trading places for instance. Actually, this is just now coming. Trading Places, excellent example of a heist movie, which doesn't hinge, except for one bit, doesn't really hinge on any physical stuff being transacted. It's pure. It's purely a war of intelligence, of knowing something that your opponent doesn't and being able to capitalize on it and therefore, quote-unquote, rob them. So, anyhow, to bring it back to the movie that we're actually talking about, which is Man on a Ledge, so I take it that Ed Harris has some some unjust or perhaps sketchy source of wealth that maybe sketchy in like a white collar crime sense. I'm guessing. Yes. Well, you know what? Uh, you know what? Maybe we should just lay a blanket spoiler warning and talk about this movie because this movie yeah, did not do well, and I don't think a lot of people are going to necessarily jump out to see this movie. So I, I won't talk about like things that are super duper spoilerish, but I will talk about the premise. All right. So yeah, here, here's the premise: is that uh, is that Sam Worthington's character, whose name is Nick Cassidy, uh, has been wrongfully convicted of jewel theft, right? Uh, and that he apparently heisted this tremendously valuable diamond uh, from Ed Harris while serving as a bodyguard for him. He, Ed Harris hires police bodyguards when he travels from place to place. Um, one of the reasons why it's important to bring up that it's a jewel is something I want to talk about later. Is that um, there's a lot of social typing that goes on in this movie, and, and Ed Harris's character is very torn in social typing because he has a big monologue about uh, how his ancestors were, were, were immigrants who were in the jewelry industry and how that he built that industry up, and now he, he became wealthy, and then he lost everything in the financial crisis, and now he's building it back up again. So that, but his na- last name is England. 
right? And he's played by Ed Harris, uh, which seems to me like a very, very self-conscious effort to make him as like non-Jewy as possible, <laughs> despite the fact that the character is very much written as a Jewish stereotype, right? Because yeah. if you know the Jewy business in New York City, you know that it tends to be dominated uh, to a large extent by immigrants from Eastern Europe, Jewish immigrants, stuff like that. It's like right. a typical type of that kind of person. Um, like, like it's a racist type. So, so you have uh, you know you have Nick Cassidy, who's like the um, you know the blue-eyed you know cop. Who is like going up against this like you know conniving businessman? But he didn't actually steal the jewel. Actually, uh, he was framed, and Ed Harris uh, hid the jewel and cl- made an insurance claim on it. And so, what, while he's trying to ste- he's trying to steal the jewel in order to prove that the jewel exists. Like according to the public story that's out there, the jewel has been broken up into pieces and sold on the black market and doesn't exist anymore. But if Ed Harris, but if uh, Sam Worthington can produce the jewel, he can prove to everybody that this was all a setup, and that Ed Harris did not deserve to get his insurance claim, which allowed him to bounce back from the financial crisis of 2008. So without that money, he wouldn't be able to build this new skyscraper that he's opening. <laughs> See, it's very complicated, <laughs> and, and a lot of it doesn't really. And then like, but the the way that it, they they really boil it down to getting this diamond, and if you have this diamond, this the truth will will be clear to everybody. Which of course it wouldn't be. Like <laughs> like it wouldn't be at all true to everybody that just because this diamond has been produced, right? That like that it exists. That like necessarily. Ed Harris is guilty of insurance fraud, and Sam Worthington, who has escaped from prison, uh, should not be returned to prison. Uh, and that's that's one of the many places in which the movie breaks down. But um, I will talk about. Let me if I can jump to the um, that is the social aspect. For, yeah. Keith, that's Go that's ahead. movie logic, though. You know what I mean? Like, if we can yeah. just get a shot of this one thing, then the you know what I mean? Then the story totally makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, I do think that. Um, that that has a purpose in the movie, and uh, and its purpose, I think, as I'm watching the movie, because if you think about heist movies, what is satisfying about a heist movie? I think the thing that's satisfying about a heist movie is that everything seems chaotic and seems impossible, and it all comes together in the end, and that's fun and reassuring to watch, because we have this expectation that we think things are going to turn out okay in a lot of ways, and when they do turn out to be okay, that's that's reassuring, and that makes us feel good. But in another sense, we also live in highly specialized environments and, and in, in, in worlds where we depend on a whole lot of people we never see to do a whole bunch of complicated, dangerous things that they probably won't do right. And they have to do all of these things right or else horrible things will happen to us, right? So, like, when I drive on a road, think of all the people who could potentially screw up in order for me to die on that road. Anybody else in a car around me could swerve into my path. Somebody manufacturing the road could have used the wrong asphalt. Like, the bridge could not have been tested or, or renovated recently. Like, modern life depends on great deal on very, very complex contributions by unseen actors. And I feel like, and I was thinking while I was watching this movie, that part of why we seem to like this new generation of heist and con movies is that we want to be reassured that like all the people, and this is also similar to like 24 and things like that, all the people around us who have all these highly technical and complex jobs are doing them correctly, and we can be confident that everything is going to be okay. Um, But... This is an interesting take on that kind of movie because, you know, Sam Worthington is ridiculously competent at things. Like, he's, he's supposed to be just a regular cop who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but he has a tremendous amount of expertise at doing a whole bunch of things he has no reason to be good at doing, right? Like, jewel heists. Like, it's like he didn't actually steal the jewel, so we're not supposed to believe he can actually – but apparently he's this super spy or whatever. But 
Here you have these upstart people who are going up against Ed Harris, and the team is Sam Worthington, who is like the blue-eyed, square-jawed, mullet-wearing cop, right, who is like, you know, the, the man who's down on his luck, who's been abused by the system. Everyone wants to root for him because he lost everything in the financial crisis in a way, and he's going after the rich guy. And then you have his brother, who is this like scrappy upstart, who is like a, kind of a punkish kid, who wears kind of like clothes that you would associate with somebody who's kind of hipsterish, right, and has like a hot, sassy Latina girlfriend, Right, and then he's kind of like the iconoclast, and he's on the edge, right? And he's the one who's doing a lot of the like the actual heist stuff. He's the rebel. So you have like the sort of uh, the sort of disgruntled mainstream white guy who's like, "Why is the world not happening the way I want it to?" And then you have like the punk hipster kid who's like, "I'm actually the one fighting the system." And in order for them to go up against the system, they have to execute like a highly complex scheme that reassures them that everything about modernity is right. Right, like, like, is that make does that make sense? It's kind of a little bit of a contradiction. Like, you're trying to destroy the established order, but in in a in a movie form that is like fundamentally dedicated to making you feel good about the systems around you. It's like the irony that the propagandists love to point out of like the Occupy protesters having iPhones and iPads and stuff. Well, I, I think that, I think that's a I think that's a needless, uh, not equivalent, uh, false equivalence. That's the word. It's a false equivalence between the. The order that arises from uh, actors coordinating voluntarily and the order that is imposed by either, you know, a capitalist institution or a government system or a body of laws or the the weight of tradition or something like that. I, I think I think most people understand. And if we want to get into like, you know, deep, you know, anarcho syndicalist theory, we can. But like most people understand the difference between, you know, a small group of actors working together voluntarily for a for a short term one time ad hoc goal and then possibly disbanding. Like this team isn't that, necessarily that could get to... that kind of thing could get you a SAG award. <laughs> well what I'm saying, John, this, this is I understand what I understand what you're talking about. Well go ahead. This team isn't necessarily going to stick together for future jewel heists. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, now that we've proven ourselves as jewel thieves, let's go on and steal some more jewels. Because that's, A, that's not necessarily what they want to do. And, B, that's actually contra their purpose. They're not trying to become better jewel thieves. They're trying to do just this one thing this one time in order to take down a bigger system. So, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I just want to say that, like, the, like... um if I if if I were to approach this movie from an an, an you know an anarcho syndicalist frame of mind, I think I would find a lot in it that indicates that the the actors in the movie are serving as a proxy for like larger society and are not just individuals. I know that that's how it works, like in the world, right? I know that, and I know people know that that like you can cooperate and it doesn't necessarily mean you're supporting the established order. But I, I really felt watching this movie the way that like the crowd pours into the streets, right? And then there's like um. There's like they actually they have like a guy who's in the crowd who's a minor character who's like a crazy guy with a beard who's like <laughs> trying to get everybody riled up and chanting Attica Attica who's kind of making fun of like actual resistance right yeah uh, and he be, he becomes kind of a more important character later in the movie as he does unlikely things um, but uh, <laughs> but um but it, but it, like it, it definitely felt and also the the group of people is a family unit and and there's every reason to believe at the end of the movie that they're going to continue to do the things that they're doing but I mean that's not neither here nor there like. Whatever. That's that's not the important thing. The important thing is that I feel like thinking about this genre of heist movies, I really I really do feel like the part of their na- narrative purpose and part of the enjoyment that we get out of them is this like active social affirmation. I mean, I, I mean, it's kind of on a. I mean, it's kind of on. An, it's definitely on an interpretive level. It's definitely something where you know why do why do I why do I feel good watching this kind of movie? 
Um, you know, why, what is this movie trying to tell me about the world around me? Not necessarily like if these circumstances were to exist in a world, in my world, and I were to know these people, like what would I think about them? Right. Um, I may, maybe, maybe that's, it's just me. Uh, maybe the, the presumption that I'm bringing into this reading is this idea that I, that I should, when I see these movies that have, that happen in these cities, that have these like big caricatures of characters who are very clearly like not representational of people, but at least like a little bit presentational about ideas. Um, and that's something in the acting style and the writing style. The characters are all a little bit larger than life and, and very melodramatic. It feels very 19th century. It feels very like, like, temperance play social drama and the way that the readings <laughs> happen to each other um you know and, and uh it's like no like you've got to come in here you know it's like no one ever believed in you like you're like me like you should you should be on my side and you should trust me you know like there's a lot of dialogue like that between the sam worthington character and the um the woman whose name i forgot uh, god already's uh character the negotiator Those about like so so okay actually it occurs to me one of the reasons why I immediately made the jump, well, immediately, like 20 minutes in the movie, into thinking about it as a larger social criticism of the status quo and in turn like a, a kind of renewal of enthusiasm for a very, very slight variation of the status quo is that um, Sam Worthington talks to Elizabeth Banks about the fact – the reason that he's – one of the reasons he's called her up into the, into the building is because since the boys club and the police department excludes her deliberately, like he knows that she is going to take his side because she's going to understand what he's been going through. And also, the audience is led to believe, do things for him because, like, he's also an opponent of the status quo. But then it turns out that he's manipulated her, and the reason that he's brought her up there is because she's failed in another recent hostage negotiation, uh, meaning that the, 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 the press will catch on to this, and, and they will all crowd this building, right? So he's, he, Sam Worthington, like, plays off of kind of a new historicist reading of this woman's own life to manipulate her into, like, bringing a lot of attention to the building. But then they go back and forth over the course of the movie being like, well, I really do think that you should be on my side because you're a woman in a man's world. But really, I just mean I am the man who just manipulated doing something else. But really, aren't you also part of the subaltern like me because I'm an ex-con, but really I'm in charge and, and incredibly smart and you can't possibly keep up with me. Like there's this, this like give and take in the social – in the between like sort of large-scale social criticism and the individual relationship between these characters. Anyway, I've been talking way too much. Um, I mean, I know what you're saying is, is correct, and I know that, uh, that that cooperation on on a small scale doesn't necessarily mean that you have to buy into the the status quo as a whole. But I just felt like the the tone of it, the sort of social message of it, uh, the sort of emotions that it provokes, because it's a very melodramatic, emotion provoking play or movie. It almost feels like a play. Um, uh, leads you in the direction of of like wanting to be a, a poser rebel who isn't actually a rebel, and feel good about getting that diamond, even though the diamond doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a fundamental change in the way that things work. <laughs> well, I mean, you saw the movie. We didn't, so that's... Well, you know, I mean, whatever. I didn't see Tower Heist either. It didn't stop me. But, I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk about, like, any sort of, like, specifics... Because I think anarchist theory is only going to get more important over the course of the next few years. I mean, that's one of the... I mean, if you see the sort of ascendant... Like, if you talk about the online social movements, the ones that are sort of gaining traction, right? What are the big ones, right? Like, like fundamentalist like uh fundamentalist uh, proselytizing atheists is a big one uh fundamentalist christians has been, has been around for a while um you know the, the the ron paul crowd like the libertarians like they're gaining they're gaining more and more traction in the online space um and definitely the anarchists like and, and these people are and i'm not saying that all of the people associated with political groups are necessarily those people but like if you kind of are keeping your ear to the ground online like those are the those are the sort of extreme viewpoints that i'm seeing gain traction with online communities 
Um, um, I mean, to, to to swing this to swing this back towards the the pop cultural angle. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've I've talked about on the side. I, I wrote in in an article last year is the is the sort of general I guess cultural fascination in the West with the hustler, the idea of somebody who cuts corners and you know makes ends meet through slightly shady means, but we sympathize with them anyway because we value cleverness, we value right. cunning as a as a virtue, even if. Even if this sometimes means that the the hustler is going to pull one over on us, we we never put ourselves in that role as the victim. Even though you know people are victims of con artists and fraudsters every day, you know we we sympathize with them. Like oh, you know there's you know there's Odysseus getting one over on the Cyclops, or there's Coyote you know sticking it to uh, sticking it to the man, or there's a Nazi pulling off a fast one or something like that. So we we respect the the trickster spirit, the hustler, and I think I think that's to bring it back to your point about men on a ledge part of the recurring appeal of heist movies. It's the idea that, you know, oh, it's the little guy getting one over on the getting one over on the established power players by virtue of cunning and initiative and a scrappy willingness to fight. Right. But the question is, to what degree is George Clooney ever the little guy, really? <laughs> right? Like 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 I mean I think I think it's a good point. I think I think that there are movies where which that are like this, that are in this genre that definitely praise the hustler i think the confidence ed burns movie confidence is a good example it's it's not canonical in the genre i just saw it and liked it years ago and it stuck with me but like um what are some other heist movies that have like an actual a lead who is like believable as like a down on his luck hustler sam worthington kind of isn't i mean he's he's he plays it more like a like this is some sort of really elaborate tactical strike right that, that he, right. he's not he's i mean he's he's misleading people and manipulating people and he's kind of a mastermind but he's not that kind of like smooth talking face man hustler kind of guy that you would expect in a lot of these kind of movies right. and he's also you don't necessarily believe that he's like the little guy beating on the big guy i mean i didn't feel that way i felt like he was the little guy but with a sense of himself as almost like a like a like a, like a demigod hero figure you know, like <laughs> just the things he's capable of doing i mean maybe I, i'm probably overestimating it no 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 that, that's fair that's yeah. fair so one of my one of my favorite heist movies is actually called heist it's by it's by david mamet uh and it stars it stars gene hackman danny devito uh uh why am i blanking on his name uh he was in galaxy quest he was in confessions of a dangerous mind he's Hit jim in- allen <laughs> no, not Tim Allen. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Uh, uh, God, now this is gonna this is gonna bug me for. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna IMDb this now. Uh, I mean, I will I will buy you some time by saying like immediately hearing Gene Hackman and Danny DeVito makes me think like Hustler a lot more. Sam than Rock, like, Sam Rockwell, Sam, Sam Rockwell. Rockwell. He's great. That's why I was confused yeah. because we were talking about Sam Worthington, and I was I wanted to say Sam. No, it can't possibly be Sam, but it's Sam Rockwell, who's yeah. who's another valuable Sam. We need yeah. Sam Worthington and Sam Rockwell to team up in a sort of buddy cop movie, where one of them's the tough, good-looking guy, and one of them's the wise-cracking, street-smart guy, and then they they fight crime. That that needs to happen. That's, we have to have Sam Awards after the SAG Awards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's let's host the Sam Awards here on the uh, here on uh, on overthinking it. But uh, uh, so anyhow, uh, it's a it's a David Mamet movie, so it's one of those you know very. Very clever, almost to the point of being obtuse, or not obtuse, abstruse. Very clever to the point of being abstruse dialogue. A uh, lot of you know things are not what they seem. A lot of lot of stuff being hinted at rather than covered in deliberate exposition. But it's a very pure sort of distilled heist movie, and it's very clever. And Gene Hackman in particular, he's he's sort of a guy on the run. Like when the 
like the movie starts with one job being pulled off and Gene Hackman gets spotted by security cameras. So he's like, oh, I've got to make a run for it. And Dana Beer's like, no, no, no. You promised me you were going to do this other job for me. And eventually through some contretemps, it works out that, all right, Gene Hackman will do the job, but under under protest, et cetera. And, you know, the movie sort of unfolds from there. But uh, but so to your point about, you know, a a a lead, you know, heister, if that's a verb or a noun, uh, a lead, a lead heister who doesn't feel like a, a glowing Hollywood leading man. That would be that would be an example because, you know, Gene Hackman plays a man of Gene Hackman's age, you know, late 60s, early 70s, what have you. Right, 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 right. And that's cool. I think one of the characteristics of that is in the story of this movie of Man on a Ledge that doesn't really play out in the way that the the movie actually unfolds is that um, there's the idea that he's supposed to be on the ledge, right? That like, the, the, <laughs> this idea that he's like he's been pushed too far. He may jump off the building. And meanwhile, he's like communicating with like his team, right? Which has all this equipment, and he's like manipulating everybody. So like the idea that he is himself at risk by being on the ledge is is introduced by a lot of visual cues. Like there's a lot of shots that are no doubt of him standing on a little concrete ledge next to a giant blue screen, and then they like put in like the the New York City uh, the avenue below him, the, the cavern there or the canyon. Um, uh, just but, a quick well, actually, uh, based on the Lotus Bank interview that I saw on the Daily Show. Uh, at least portions of that were actually shot on the actual ledge in really that you see yeah that's pretty impressive because yeah. he definitely like there definitely are times where he's trying really hard to look scared he's like oh no i might fall off the ledge i jump off the ledge uh <laughs> you know, like um but uh, dialogue there Pete. exactly it, it's it's not it's not that bad it's much better than that but um but uh, yeah, but I think that that the one of the things that needs to be true about hustler or that I like about hustler characters is that they they are kind of there's something that's just a step behind them all the time, right? Like something might catch up with them at any moment. Like at any moment, George Clooney can wake up in a room with a bag over his head and be like, "Well, how the hell am I getting myself out of this situation?" Right? Like um, that that when things go wrong, he's at risk, or also like he's just ahead of the wave. Whereas like the ironically, the ledge is kind of the safest place to be in the movie. <laughs> Like, like everything else that's happening around him is like much more dynamic, and because of the uh, the policies, procedures, and liabilities associated with people committing suicide, like he the ledge is his his safe place. Like nobody is going, nobody wants him to jump off the ledge, despite the fact that everybody wants him dead, right? Like which is interesting, um, but also just like not doesn't really give that sense of him being like on the run. That ends kind of abruptly um, or quickly, you know, maybe about half an hour into the movie. So how much time is spent? Uh- on this ledge in the movie, uh, the entire—I mean, I'd say almost the entirety of the time most times on the ledge. What the whole movie? Was yeah, it? yeah, the the whole movie, and then a very small portion in another right in another way of counting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like uh-huh. well, the thing is that it cuts back and forth between the two brothers. So there's like so basically, Sam Worthington has an earpiece, and he's like calling the shots for his brother's team, which is like him and the sassy Latina who are like conducting the heist, right, in the building across the street. And the whole point is that he's on the ledge to drive his attention to him, because if as long as they're looking at him, they're not looking across the street where they're setting off bombs and robbing vaults and doing all sorts of craziness, right? Like, um, so, so, uh, so that's it's a misdirection, but of a very small degree. So, so there's actually a couple of scenes in the movie where he has to simultaneously talk to Elizabeth Banks and to his brother, like in the in the kind of way that's very kitschy and out of a sitcom, where like she asks him a question and the brother asks him a question, and he has to give an answer that answers both questions correctly. 
right? So like, which is where kind of one of the places where it breaks down. But yeah, like, um, like he's on the ledge, but the movie is not confined to the ledge because he has the ability to affect events that are happening like throughout the city. Right. And like he'll like, you know, there are things that are discovered that he's planted that set agencies in motion at very particular times to show up and do specific things that like his brother didn't know were going to happen. But he's prepared for because he's got the plan ahead of time. It feels a bit like Prison Break in that regard. Um, sure. Like the character, the main character from Prison Break is probably the person whose resourcefulness he matches the most in terms of fictional characters that I've seen recently. Um, and also in the sense that like ostensibly he is confined or trapped in an unfavorable position where, in fact, he's calling the shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like the much, much less energizing uh, play on that wonderful Rorschach scene, right, from Watchmen, the comic as well as the movie, where, like, all the criminals are really excited that Rorschach, the vigilante, has been put in jail because now they're going to get to kill him. And then he kills one of them, like, in the cafeteria. <laughs> he says it was, like, with, like, the food, like, <laughs> it's, like with the scalding food and, like, hit and hits him with it. And he's like, you don't get it. You know, I'm not trapped in here with all of you. You're all trapped in here with me. Right? And from there on, like, it's just a series of kind of keystone cops as the criminals try to kill him and he kills them instead. Um, it's sort of like that, but without the sadism. Um, or without, really, the moral judgment or the moral complexity, right? Like, you know, I'm in this confined space, but really I'm in charge. And you should all feel comfortable with the fact that I'm in charge. Um, and also you should be suspicious of the black guy. Ah, uh, which well, is another thing. It's in the movie. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, let me ask something just, as, like, just to totally take us off of our subject. You yeah. mentioned, you know, the talking through the earpiece thing, right? Yeah. And presumably it's that kind that's hidden, right? That fits just inside of the ear that no yes. one else can see, but it still allows you to talk and communicate, right? Yeah. So do those things actually exist, is that an actual piece of hardware that is used by, like, you know, law enforcement and military uh, operatives? You can have because, a- you know, from what I know of, of headsets, like, you know, having uh, a small microphone that allows you to pick up your voice clearly, that's a very difficult thing to achieve through engineering. I mean, my understanding is that this, from my own experience, film, and John can attest to this, too, because we used to be in a video improv troupe that would shoot a lot on the fly. There's no way that the wind at this level is going to let him pick up anything on a microphone. Like, like he's in a New York City Avenue, which are all wind tunnels. He's up on like the 20th floor or something, and uh, and he's talking into like a tiny microphone that's suspended on his cheek. Like, it's going to be very if 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 this is the degree to which we're criticizing the movie, oh. that technology isn't particularly believable. Do you see it suspended on yeah. his cheek, or is it the kind of like in Mission Impossible where it's like totally inside of the ear? No, no, no it's almost like a hearing aid. Yeah, 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 that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and he sort of cheats out so that, like, people only talk to the right side of his face. So nobody sees that he has a microphone on the left, a tiny microphone on the left side of his face. But Uh, it's not anywhere near his mouth. It's, like, suspended up a little bit. Okay. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, John, you can, you've you've filmed shots outside of the wind. You know that even, like, a light breeze can totally wreck, pick up on a microphone. Yes, I can attest to all this. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, maybe, I know microphone technology has gotten a bit better, and maybe it's highly directional. And but it's one of the, sometimes you have one of those things that looks like a large dead rabbit that you stuff the microphone inside and you hold it, you know, that, that mitigates yeah. the wind noise sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he might have something on his lapel that I didn't quite catch, but like of the many plaus- implausible things that happen in the movie, like the fact that he's able to unnoticed conduct this conversation successfully using like invisible technology, which he has access to. Right, given the fact that his job is as a as a cop who has to pick up security work on the side because he's making enough money doing a, being a cop, you know, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm going to hang on to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I hope that this has been exciting because I, I I don't know. It's partially it's the lecture, listening to the lecture. I really recommend taking advantage of this like uh, iTunes University stuff if you can. That's free uh, because it's it's pretty it's pretty cool to be able to listen to that stuff without paying any money for it. Um. 
really gets your brain going. So I was overthinking this while I was watching it. I saw it for the I went to the movie theater. I was like, I need to see a movie so I can talk about it on the podcast, which is totally going to affect your hermeneutical circle, right? It's totally going to affect your interpretation. <laughs> being like, the I went to the movie theater. I went to the Somerville movie theater, and I was like, I want to see a movie. I hope it's the Liam Neeson movie with the wolves, but I only have three hours. It has to be starting at a specific time. And oh, the Liam Neeson movie starting at 7.30. I won't be able to get back in time. So then I went to Harvard Square, and I was like, what movies are playing there? I physically went there rather than look it up. And it's like, oh, nothing starting in time. Oh, and then I went to, and then went to Boston Common, and this movie was starting on time. I was like, okay, I'm watching this movie for the express purpose of overthinking it, which is going to affect how I interpret it. Like, like what John said, I'm going to interpret everything as happening as, as a big social construct rather than looking at the plausibility of the actions of the individual people. So, uh, so Pete, whereas you were very uh, pressed for time in, in your recent choice of movies, I was in a very different situation where I had all the time in the world, you know, to be precise, a 12-hour Trans-Pacific flight to watch movies. So shall I go ahead and take us to our next uh, topic to, for, to close up the show? I think oh, yeah. you should. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about the experience of, uh, of watching uh, movies on a plane uh, a little bit later. But first, before I do that, um, so as I mentioned earlier, I was in, uh, in, in Taiwan earlier last week, um, hence my jet lag. Um, but uh, that uh, you know put me in the in the Asian mood, and I'm sure you're all familiar with you know being in the Asian mood. So one of the film offerings on the plane was 1911, and if you're not familiar with it, it was the uh, Jackie Chan produced historical epic about the Chinese Revolution of 1911, which overthrew the Qing Dynasty, and uh, you know set in motion a lot of different things in history that eventually led to the communists taking over in China and uh, and the uh, KMT uh, fleeing to mainland Taiwan to establish the Republic of China. So anyway, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I, you know, we'd just spent a week in Taiwan. We'd been to a bunch of monuments. We wanted to, you know, take in the, the get a little bit of a history lesson and watch this movie. We see it. Uh, in a nutshell, it's pretty bad. There's a lot of things that are not good about it. But one thing in particular that I want to point out that was bad about it and get your reaction to were the English-speaking characters in this movie. So just to put this out to the panel, have any of you had this experience where you're watching a movie that's you know, made for Asian markets and is primarily in an Asian language, and then a white person comes on screen and is like a completely terrible actor? <laughs> you know, I've read, oh. blogs, I've read blogs by people who do that, who actually like, make a living living in China or something like that and being the white guy in uh, movies and TV shows. And, and they're, like like, they're amateur actors, right? Well, and so I've, they're, I've, they're getting I've paid been- for it, so... Well, <laughs> I've had that experience as well in the in the Jet Li movie uh, Once Upon a Time in China, which is his kickoff of the uh, Wong Fei Hung series. It's set during you know the the British occupation of uh, I believe Hong Kong and Canton, and uh, so there are a couple of British you know actors in there as villains, uh, including one martial artist who's okay. But yes, their their dialogue in particular, even the even the English dialogue they have, which is supposedly their native language. Is pretty terrible, right? They speak it fluently. Don't you know? Don't get me wrong, right? But it's delivered in such a hackneyed way, right? And uh, and and so awkwardly that the effect of it is extremely jarring when you're watching a movie that's otherwise extremely competently, well, at least you know, technically put together. Uh, you know, and the, it seems like the Asian actors who you know, if you may even understand the language, but it seems like they are acting at a high level. Um, you know, which Jackie Chan is known to do, act at a high level. Um, and then along comes you know these crazy lines like. I want to join your revolution. You know, I'm not really even uh, exaggerating much in terms of how it was delivered. It was just like neck snap reaction. Mm-hmm. And and what I wanted to, to speculate here on a little bit is, um, you know, maybe 20 years ago or so, you know, with, with limited resources and limited English language uh, competence on the set, that something like this would be excusable. But nowadays in our globalized world, it seems uh, much less so. 
So it's like, what are the sequence of events which which resulted in this the third rate actor showing up on what is otherwise a huge budget movie and delivering well, terrible lines? Well, well, not not to not to lecture you on on what Asian cultures value, Mark, because uh, that'd be <laughs> no. Please do, Sean. That, 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 I, I wouldn't even say a supreme irony. Uh, what's 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 the adjective that best describes a nadir? A uh, <laughs> the the worst possible irony. I don't know. But for one, I, so a the the kinds of traits that are valued in Asian cinema, to my limited familiarity with it, are different from the kinds of traits that are valued in Western cinema. I base this off a couple things. One. Uh, Asian cinema will use a lot of cinematographic tricks that just aren't used at all in Western cinema. Like, you know, the sudden splash zoom in on somebody when they have a momentous revelation of something. This is this is sort of like almost stereotyped to, you know, Asian cinema, particularly uh, kung fu movies. Like when somebody learns that, you know, the, the, the masked assassin is really, you know, their former apprentice. You know, there'll be a, a sudden, you know, slap zoom on their face and, you know, a, a musical sting of some sort. That sort of thing doesn't happen in doesn't happen as much in western cinema but it's a it's a it's it's almost a staple of asian cinema and a certain type of asian cinema i mean a certain type of asian cinema. are we talking about hong kong cinema here specifically are we talking about like the influence between hong kong and japanese cinema or um... sorry sorry, yes i i i specifically mean hong kong and and cantonese cinema i i shouldn't i shouldn't lump all of the the asian pacific rim in uh in one in one bucket there or our uh or our Indian uh, audience might get a little upset with us. To say and nothing, it dancing. It would be horrific. <laughs> to say nothing of our, our Indonesian or or Jakartan audience. So, a, Wait, a the Philippines is on the forums. But anyway, continue. <laughs> so anyway, my my point is there are certain things that are valued in Cantonese cinema that aren't valued in Western cinema, and it's it's not that you know Hong Kong audiences will watch this and say, oh, that's terrible, or oh, that's cheesy. That's that's sort of what they what they expect. Mm-hmm. And you can also you can also take as as an obvious lesson in this the fact that uh, Ang Lee's uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, when it first came out, was not as successful in or was not as critically acclaimed in Hong Kong and China as it was in the West, largely because it was a it was a traditional uh, kung fu style movie, but it was made very much in a in a Western style because you know that's that's how Ang Lee does his movies and the and uh, Hong Kong audiences just just weren't comfortable with it. They weren't familiar with it. It's like why why are people you know just why are people just staring at each other with with such stiff expressions? Why aren't they you know? acting boldly why aren't there you know musical cues and and things like that why where where's the melodrama uh, that was that was some of the reaction also part partly because the movie was uh was shot in mandarin but almost none of the actors were native mandarin speakers so that that might have that might have hurt it a little uh, i had did i have a third point i don't think i did so I, I guess the ultimate point I'm going for is maybe that's not what a Hong Kong audience looks for. Maybe they don't look for the, the sort of restrained or naturalistic performances that we kind of expect out of a, out of a Western audience. Maybe that's, maybe that's not a value to them. I, I'd also add another factor, uh, unless you want – I mean, Mark, if you want to respond to that at first, I can – I'll jump in. No, I, I buy that mostly, um, except that uh, – 
it's not so much about sort of the style of things, right? You know, that sort of, you know, I want to join the revolution thing is an, ex- you know, fits along with that melodramatic thing. But there are other instances of like lines delivered sort of uh, unevenly. It's like almost like someone like, you know, it, it, it's, it speaks of sloppiness, less of a style thing. It's like someone delivered the line, you know, choppingly and that was a first take. And rather than go back and do it again for a second take, they're like, okay, that's fine. Good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's move on. So, I mean, I, I would, I would, I would say another thing that, plays into this and reinforces this, though I don't think it's the primary focus or reason for it, would have to do with editing style and, and shot length. Because I think if you watch uh, American action movies from like the 80s, a lot of the bit parts, they're terrible. Like the small actors, like the actors with small parts, they're no small parts, just small actors. Uh, wait, um, a lot of the small actors are terrible. I don't mean the little people. I mean the ones who have like one or two lines. And I think that one of the things that's different and that changed faster in American cinema than in specifically Hong Kong cinema is that especially in the kinds of movies that we're talking about, you, got, you really start seeing the shot length cut down. And you start seeing a lot fewer... Op- opportunities for an, a minor character in an action movie to like step forward, say an entire couple of sentences, and then then cut, right? And I think um, part of I think it's just that part of the reason for this is like just the pacing and the the idea that the audience is or isn't comfortable with that kind of a shot. But if you want to take it to okay, this is an unintentional effect of that kind of editing is that you if you get a terrible actor, you can cut down to like the half a second when they look good, right? And then if and you keep it or you don't or you throw it away, right? You don't feel like you have to have that full line from that terrible actor. But this is this is caused by the aesthetic change. One of the other factors here is that um, it reminds me of bad poetry and specifically of like bad old school rap. Like if people go out there, I see this a lot at improv shows and I don't mean to be insulting to people. Um, but uh, there's a there's a kind of rap that you see a lot in improv shows particularly, but also in any kind of like parody rap. I'm going to make a yes. silly rap song. Yes, where yes, like. Yes. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, where, I've, I've made this point elsewhere, but you, you make it because I, I can rant on this for hours. You go. Where, like, where people just like say entire rolling sentences and, and like there's no, there's no like crispness to the choice of rhythm. There's no like everything is like da 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 rhyme. The problem is it's, it's rap in a style that sort of had its heyday in 1986. Yeah, and has never progressed beyond that point. Like it has, it has none of the the new jack swing, golden air, uh, golden age of hip hop influence. None of the none of the Busta Rhymes or West Coast style. It's like literally Run DMC was the peak of rapping ability for for these guys. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think a lot of it comes from. And here we get into some sort of weird racial hermeneutics. So 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 clear the room, people. Uh, <laughs> I think part of it comes from the fact is that to, is that most of this is done by you know white performers like you know white improv performers or white guys making a YouTube video that's going to be a rap parody, and for a and for a white person who's not really familiar with hip hop culture, the most important thing about a rap song is making sure that every word is heard and enunciated clearly. <laughs> whereas that is in fact possibly the least important thing in most rap songs yeah and what i would add is that because of the that they're more familiar with stuff like you know poetry that they read a book like longfellow or like you know even children's poetry right like you know children's garden of verses and stuff they're gonna they're gonna be speaking in like pentameter like iambic pentameters and hexameters like tetrameters and ballad meter and one of the big changes that happens to hip-hop over the course of the 90s is that they 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 
cut down on the excessive reliance on that kind of flow. And, exactly. and a lot of the rapping becomes much more terse, and you leave out the words that don't say anything, and you leave out the syllables that don't contribute. There's a lot fewer syllables that just fill out the feet, and things become much more accentual. Right. Yeah, um, there, there's there's so much more of an emphasis on things like you know midline breaks or first yeah. beat rests or just just ways of playing with staccato rhythm. And uh, it, it, folks, if you're if you're an improv performer or a uh, rap parody maker and you're listening to this, please, I, I want you to understand, I'm not accusing you of being racist. I'm just saying your rapping skills are terrible. And I'm, I'm saying that also, def- if you're a Hong Kong movie maker defaulting to that kind of predictable feeling of a shot length, feeling of what an English sentence ought to sound like, feeling of how a bit actor should come out as an American and say something is a mark both of like a a lack of the experience with the form and familiarity with the currency of it to make the cuts necessary, to like cut out the extra crap, right? And to make it tense and terse and make it purposeful, right? And, And also just like a lack of knowledge in general of like where it's progressed over the course of time and like being a little bit, a few steps behind, like you're copying Lethal Weapon, you're not copying The Hurt Locker. Right, like, um, which I mean, I'm just tooting my own. But, Can I just say yeah. how, how grateful I am that your explanation of this phenomenon involved hip hop? Like, that's, <laughs> that's just fantastic. That's why people well, are overthinking of podcasts. Like, <laughs> well, you know, a podcast is like a game of chess. You must think first before you <laughs> to bring it all together, to bring the Hong Kong action and the hip hop together with Ghostface Killer and the Wu Tang Clan. We could keep talking about this for a long time, but I want to talk about the other interesting thing about watching movies on a plane. Is in that there is this I, weird. I've had it with these mother effing movies on these mother effing planes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Um, is that you know when you watch a movie on a plane, it's it's mostly a private experience in that you know there's this little screen which uh, you know ostensibly only you can see, but you're sort of aware as well that you know your fellow passengers might be able to see what you're watching as well. So that might influence your movie, your movie choice. And uh, also it does influence the fact that what uh, movies that are shown on planes are edited for content, right? So it's ostensibly to get it down to about a PG-13 or so. So you're not going to see boobies on it. But you, what you will see is uh, the science fiction classic Alien mm-hmm. on a plane. And, and uh, just, you know, for those of you who haven't seen Alien, well, go out and see it. But, you know, that there's that infamous, you know, chest-busting scene. In this, right? And I was, you know, I saw a passenger a couple um, row ahead of me, um, and you know, I was eaves over, you know, watching over the shoulder. Eaves watching? Is that was there a word for that? Um, <laughs> I was I was spying on this person watching Alien, and I saw it was towards the beginning of it, and it's sort of building up, building up, building up, and you know, and you sort of see the, all the actions leading up to the the chest busting scene. I was like, what, are they going to be able to show that on a plane? Uh, and then, sure enough, bah! there it is. There's a stabilizing penis which is coming out of this guy's chest, and it's all bloody, and then it like scurries off, and it's like. And, and I was watching that. I was like, what I was thinking was two things. One, like, you know, they didn't cut that. And two, are you thinking, is that person thinking about what other people are going to, uh, uh, to be able to see on his screen uh, as he's making that choice of to watch Alien? You know, I had this problem when I was watching pirated episodes of The Sopranos uh, on the train commute between Connecticut and New York, which I used to take a lot, a lot, a lot. And I had a lot of, you know, HBO television shows that would keep me company on my... Now, and the, these were not edited for, for content, and I was watching them on my own laptop. And at some point, I... I I realized, I think at the first appearance of nudity, that like, wait, this is, I mean, it's funny, the nudity did it to me, but the, the deplorable violence didn't. Wait, wait, there, I'm in a public place, there, there are people all around me, um, you know, I, this, this might have some effect on, the, uh, on the, the people around me. But I think as we get more and more into these kind of personal video 
uh, personal video devices that we watch in public as we are, you know, I don't know, bowling alone or alone together or whichever of the books you want to read. Um, as we as we watch these things together, we have to. There's going to be this thing of kind of like polluting the environment with boobies. You know what I mean? Or aliens look like penises. Or aliens or yeah. penis aliens. I, polluting the environment with penis aliens is is in fact a far worse problem. I have similar pet peeves with uh, graphic novels and with um, fitness websites. Because, like, I, I can't necessarily read, like, an adult-level graphic novel on a train because the likelihood of there being nudity in it at random is pretty high if it's, like, a quote-unquote serious work, right? Um, so that can happen. And also, like, it's hard to, wa- to look at, like, a fitness website at work because all of a sudden it's going to be a whole bunch of shirtless people. Like, really, I want to read about, like... So, like, there's certain places where people feel like they have a handle on who their audience is, and yet those things do get projected into spaces where it is still not acceptable to have those things happen. But you can also just... You could just have a beheading in the middle of the office and no one would care, because, like, violence doesn't matter. It's all sex. That's the bad stuff. Right? Like, anyway. So, do you feel like if you were on a plane... And uh, and are you watching a movie like Alien with a similar violent content that you would go ahead and uh, and hit play and put it up? I think specifically that people think – when people think of Alien, they think of aliens. They forget what Alien is actually like, right? They think that they're going to be watching this sort of action sci-fi movie and forget that it's this like horror movie, right? This like thriller horror movie that has like horror elements and people doing gross things. So I don't blame him for watching Alien and thinking that it was like a PG-13, you know, friendly, you know, plane-watching movie. And it might be PG-13. But the point is that, like, I, if, I, if, there, if I were watching a movie that I knew had, like, a really gross thing in it, like, I would probably want to turn away from it when that gross thing happened on the plane. But I don't blame him for thinking that Alien wasn't like that or that the chest-busting scene in Alien wasn't like that. Um, just maybe, so maybe it's my fault, then, for not turning away. I knew it was coming. I well, just, no, I mean, I like, he would have changed, I the, I would change the channel. I, I would change the channel briefly and then change back. Oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, it was on his screen, you know, a, a row on, of me. On, I mean, on his laptop or on his I don't TV? Know, on, or? On, the, on the little screen that's in the back of the seat. Yeah, so he can change the channel, right? Like, Oh, he should change the channel. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would do, is that oh, if I knew okay. that there was, like, a nudity Re- scene. Reach, or over, like, reach over and tap him on the shoulder and be like, excuse me, sir. Oh, it's not your business. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. Do you want to say that condescension again so that we get all of it out? Oh, no, I, I, I think people got it. I think people got okay. the concept. Okay, that's good. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> well, uh, hey, I, I think it's time for the end of the hour of condescension that we call the Overthinking Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, hey, uh, more announcements than usual this week. There's, um, there's the new design is up on uh, on overthinking it. We celebrated our fourth birthday. Uh, I'm surprised that we didn't mention it last week because we were actually in the middle of celebrating it. That was the day, um, and it just uh, in in our rush to you know podcast it uh, it slipped out. But uh, on overthinkingit.com, we have a couple new things. One is the the new design has launched. It's a work in progress. We're still kind of kind of tweaking it and going going with it. So there's a uh, there's a forum, and that's the other new things. There's forums on overthinkingit.com. Um, the uh, the forums uh, there is a forum for official business, and there's a forum for. Um, 
Uh, there's a forum for suggestions and bug fixes and things like this. So if you have bug fixes on the new site, we, I'd really appreciate it if you could uh, go put it in there. Uh, the other thing that's happening is that we, have a, uh, we now have a, um, an Amazon.co.uk affiliate account in addition to uh, an Amazon.com affiliate account. And so if you are elsewhere in the, uh, the Anglophone world, I was searching online. I would have joined one for Australia or New Zealand or something, but... Um, I I couldn't find those, and I, it's it, those seem to re- redirect to uh, the UK website. So if you are in uh, anywhere else in the Anglophone world uh, besides America, you now can uh, support overthinking it when you use uh, Amazon.co.uk to buy all the crap that you um, buy from there. Last, oh, Matt, that's cracking good. That's capital, right? <laughs> You've come here as free men, and free men you are. Um, the uh, the last the last thing is um, we got into uh, number fifty on the iTunes charts Woo-hoo. for TV and Woo-hoo. film podcasts. That's our highest ranking, I think, uh, last week. So um, help us uh, help us meet or surpass that. Uh, you know, clear that bar uh, this week. Do us a favor and log on to iTunes and leave a rating for the show. We'd love it if it's a good rating, you know, obviously. Uh, you can leave a comment if you want. We love the comments and I read them. Um, but uh, if you just click a number of stars that happens to be five, that uh, is just as good for us. And, hey, do us a favor. Uh, I've asked this before, but let me, let me ask this again. Turn a friend on to the show. Send an email to a friend and say, hey, I found this thing on the Internet and I think you'd be into it. Uh, and, you know, send a, uh, a link to the iTunes page page or to um to uh overthinking.com slash otip uh which is where uh the the sort of podcast landing page is on uh on the overthinking it site we'd really uh appreciate that so um you can join the uh conversation in the show notes or i guess on the forums i don't know there are many conversations it's very com- it's very complicated we're gonna have a difficult time keeping track of it uh you can call us at 203-285-6401 you can email us at podcast at overthinking it.com and you can visit us on the all new redesigned www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. And the Sam Award goes to I Am Sam. Starring Sean Penn. Don't, don't. Come on, Mr. Froko, let's get out of here. This is bullshit. <laughs> Let me tell you a little story about a man on a ledge. He liked listening to disco in Sister Sledge. He had to steal some jewels to prove his innocence. I can't think of something that rhymes with innocence. Oh, <laughs> that's man on a ledge. Man on a ledge. He's a man and he's on a ledge. What? <laughs> oh, you want to be you, you want to be real offensive. It's man on a ledge. Man on a ledge. He's a man on the mother effing ledge. <laughs> so edgy. <laughs> yeah. well, the, the one I was thinking about when you talked about rapping ballad stances, I was thinking, yo, 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 because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage oh. held but just ourselves and immortality. <laughs> what? <laughs> Remix. Wiki, wiki. <laughs>